Again, everybody, uh, it's Ron Remkes here for another episode of Take 15. Uh, today, we are joined by Sheila Baer, the current chair of the Systemic Risk Council and former head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, also known as the FDIC. Uh, Sheila, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when you were head of the FDIC, uh, you played a key role in the resolution of the crisis. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk to our audience about what you view as sort of the root causes of the crisis. Well, too much leverage. Uh, you know, you pretty much look at any financial cycle throughout history, and it's it's leverage uh, fueling uh, asset bubbles. Uh, almost always is is the cause. So you had uh, you know very accommodative monetary policy prior to the crisis. So so credit uh, was readily available. You had a misguided uh, notion that the good times were there forever. That we had mastered cycles. It was a great moderation. You didn't really need regulations anymore. So banks started taking on more and more leverage, capital rules were changed to let them uh, take on more and more leverage. And uh, borrowers started taking on more and more leverage too as it became easy for, too easy to get a mortgage. Uh, the decision to make a mortgage for someone became disassociated with whether they had the income to pay the loan back. Um, that dramatically increased demand, so you had a leverage-fueled uh, bubble that uh, was unsustainable and pop. So um, getting bank capital levels higher, where we've, we've made some real progress, I think, with the Systemic Risk Council's advocacy on mortgage lending standards. We have lending standards now that require ability to repay, not so much on the down payment side uh, yeah. to contain borrower leverage, but at least for the large financial institutions, I think there's been some, some real headway there. Okay. One of the things that you highlighted in your book is the disjointed nature of the regulation preceding right. the crisis where uh, at the FDIC, you guys advocated for uh, more stringent and consistent application of right. underwriting standards. Right. Uh, OTC had a different perspective on it. The Fed had a different perspective on it. Right. Can you talk about what role that played? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think that you know, Ben Bernanke has said this. Um, what really should have happened was the Fed needed to step in. The Fed was the only uh, entity that had the ability to write mortgage lending standards for both banks and non-banks. And a lot of the, the really toxic subprime loans were actually being originated outside of the insured banking sector. So, um, and Ben Bernanke has, has admitted that. And there was, I was at Treasury in 2001 and 2002. We were pushing that then. Uh, but they just, again, this idea of self-correcting markets and regulation really did more harm than good was so pervasive that even as this thing started going totally out of control, the Fed did not act. So we tried to at least tighten mortgage lending standards for banks that we uh, insured and worked with the other regulators. But you're right, there was some real... It was ironic, the, um, there were two different types of loans that were creating problems. One were the so-called Alt-A loans mm -hmm. or pick-a-pay mortgages that had negative amortization features, right? So you pick your, pick your payment and pick actually pay, wouldn't like even that. be uh, doing enough to amortize principal. So your principal balance would get bigger, not smaller over time. Those actually, uh, <coughs> thrifts uh, did a lot of those. National banks and state chartered banks did not. So there was actually OCC with, was with us on trying to get better standards for there, for those uh, that subcategory of loans. But for subprime, which didn't have negative amortization, but they did have these huge payment resets and really abusive yeah. prepayment penalties, there was a lot of uh, resistance uh, to tightening standards there. And yeah, I do, uh, and I think people need to understand the give and take and how sometimes turf uh, interest, jurisdictional interest of regulators can overcome their better sense in terms of what is prudent in terms of, of lending standards. Right. 
And one of the outgrowths, uh, of course, right. in the resolution of the crisis uh, was the creation of the Financial Stability Board. Right. And if, if you let me quote for one second, they've got four main objectives. Right. Uh, first one's building resilience of financial institutions, mm -hmm. ending too big to fail, mm -hmm. transforming shadow banking to transparent and resilient market-based financing, mm -hmm. and making derivatives markets safer. Mm -hmm. Of those four, what have we achieved? <laughs> Well, I'd say we're about halfway there on most of it. Um, on we have, uh, in terms of making uh, the banking system more resilient, uh, again, capital levels are key. You know, common equity is loss absorbing, debt is not loss absorbing. So the more you can get banks to fund with common equity, not debt, the more resilient uh, you make them and the banking sector become. On derivatives, uh, I think we've done, uh, in a large part, due to Gary Gensler, a lot of the. Um, a lot of uh, derivatives, which used to be done off the counter, uh, over the counter in a bilateral uh, transaction, is now there. At least are now being centrally cleared and, and more and more uh, exchange traded as well. So I think that is uh, helpful and improves transparency and hopefully mitigates risk. But there's a real question now about who's regulating the clearinghouses, and I, I think that's that's a big question. The SEC and CFTC have the authority to regulate clearinghouses; they are underfunded and overstretched right now. So I do worry about that. In terms of the, 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 the so-called shadow sector or non-traditional banking sector, um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Uh, these Title I designations have been slow to start, and that was really the way to capture systemic institutions and put them under some kind of prudential oversight, hopefully with the longer-term goal of making them non-systemic so they can, they can fail in a bankruptcy without us, any of us having to worry about that. That's, that's been pretty slow to start, uh, so that, that's a bit troubling. Um, and also just risk generally, asset managers, uh, the Office of Financial Research issued what I thought was a helpful report that raised a lot of questions. We don't know the answers to that. We don't know to what extent uh, risk may be building, for instance, with private equity funds and hedge funds, uh, in, in, as well as more uh, traditional uh, regulated uh, fund industry. And I think we need more information there. So I, I would have to say on, on that, uh, on the shadow sector, I think there's still a lot of work left. So, so just drilling down a bit uh, in terms of the too big to fail right. and ending too big to fail. Right. The too big to fail banks are bigger today right. than they were at the time of the crisis. Right. So, are we going in the wrong direction? Yeah. Well, uh, I think there has been some progress. We have tools now, uh, better tools to resolve the entire financial organization, the entire banking organization. Whereas before, we had this siloed structure, so the FDIC had the authority over insured banks, but the rest of it was supposed to go into bankruptcy, and the non-banks like AIG, Lehman Brothers, et cetera, were subject to a bankruptcy process, which doesn't work very well for financial institutions. So I think uh, the tools are there. Uh, the FDIC's put out some good uh, analysis and uh, work on explaining how, through single point of entry, something called single point of entry, they would take down a large financial organization if it gets into trouble. Uh, some things that will make that work better is to require uh, the organization to issue more long-term unsecured debt at the holding company level, what they call in Europe bail-inable debt, which mm -hmm. would be available for loss absorption if they fail. The best way to, to take control of these institutions now that they get into trouble is at the holding company and continue to fund the operating subsidiaries, which is the near-term plan if you, if you want to get in trouble now. So just to uh, clarify, uh, in the U.S., people mm -hmm. are talking about using more of a bail-in structure? So bail-in in the sense that po what I call post-resolution bail-in. So there has been there had been some early proposals to have uh, bail-in bail debt on a going concern basis, which we don't think works very well um, because what that can end up doing is just delaying resolution 
so that you take the debt, it converts to equity, uh, creditors continue to run, and then you just have a, a, a more toxic institution to, res to resolve. So when I say bail-inable debt, I'm talking about post-resolution. So the institution fails, it becomes insolvent or can't meet its uh, liability obligations. It goes into a resolution process. At that point, the, the senior debt converts into equity, but that is accompanied with a process to restructure the institution, clean it up, you know, get new management in there, create, keep the bad assets in a separate facility. That's really what you need, uh, and which, frankly, we didn't do uh, during the crisis. And I think if we had, with institutions like Citigroup, done some fundamental restructuring, we would have had a, a healthier, safer banking system now, but we just didn't do that. Okay. And so do you see investors requiring a premium for that possibility? I think they will, and uh, that's another nice feature of this kind of debt is that it will increase big bank funding costs, which will create market pressure for them to downsize. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, you've also uh, written about your support of the Volcker Rule, mm -hmm. and you talked a little bit about that today at your, your mm -hmm. presentation. Um, and I believe it was in your book or one of your articles, I forget which, uh, you talked about the aggregate cost of compliance with uh, the Volcker Rule. Uh, or I, correct me if I'm wrong, right. but your aggregate cost of compliance, uh, you give examples of J.P. Morgan um, at $3 billion, a small bank like M&T at $50 million, right. And you know, just speculating on my part uh, across the industry, maybe it's fifty billion or yeah, some large yeah, number. Yeah. If you, in turn, you know, uh, shrunk these banks down to smaller size, right. the same number of people would be have access to the <laughs> same number of loans, right? right you just have right. different sized institutions. Right. Are we really better off yeah. just shrinking everything? Well, a um, couple things. The, the, the numbers there, that wasn't just the Volcker rule. That was all, uh, all, regulation. all, all okay. the increase. And, and a lot of that's be actually being driven by the stress test, not so much. And, and BSA compliance is a big component as well. So it's, it's not just the Volcker rule. Actually, the smaller banks, uh, though I mean, I'm not sure why the follow, this Volcker, bank, Volcker rule need, even needs to apply to smaller banks. I mean, if you don't have a trading operation, it's, it's or a trading book, it's difficult to see why you need the Volcker rule, but be, be that as it may, uh, I, don't, I don't think the Volcker rule is a huge driver of regulatory costs for the smaller institutions. Okay. You know, I would like to see the market drive the optimal size and efficiency of, and complexity of large financial institutions, but so long as we have too big to fail, uh, we're not going to see that dynamic. And as I indicated in my remarks earlier, it's, it's really hard to see that there are uh, economies of scale that you realize uh, from the size and complexity. You get a lot of management inefficiencies, and I think that's one of the reasons why well-managed regional banks have consistently performed better than the big institutions, even prior to the crisis in the go-go years. So if we can get this idea that uh, big banks are going to get bailed out, which mm -hmm. fuels their size and, and reduces their funding <coughs> costs, force them to issue it a long-term debt that's going to clearly be available for loss absorption. I think you can create a lot of market pressure to downsize, and hopefully you will see the market determining what the optimal size of a, of a financial institution is. But my guess is the market will say it needs to be a lot smaller, and it may be a lot simpler, too, and that maybe these institutions can work better and pr produce more shareholder value if we keep we keep them separate. We keep investment banking and derivatives market making separate from commercial banking. Right. Um. You've been on the record uh, uh -huh. talking about Basel II right. and your, your critique of that. Right. And I'm not quite sure where it stands today, given right. all the things yeah. that have happened in the last yeah. four years. Yeah. Where does it stand? Where well, Where is it? Is yeah. it sort of slowly <laughs> resurrecting there's itself? A, there's a lot of uh, Basel II, Basel III get, get thrown around a lot. Um, the part of Basel II that I have opposed and successfully kept uh, the banks from... Uh, uh, 
adopting uh, prior to the crisis, banks we insured, was the so-called advanced approaches, which basically let large complex financial institutions use their own internal models to decide how risky their assets are and therefore how much capital they need to hold under the risk-based rules. There have been some bells and whistles put on top of that since the crisis so that the, the results you see uh, using internal models aren't quite as egregious as the simulations we were running prior to the crisis, which really showed eye-dropping reductions in capital by letting banks use their own internal models. Right. But they're, they're, it, the framework is still there, and it drives this complexity. It drives, as I mentioned, uh, Andy Haldane's research at the Bank of England. There are a million different inputs, uh, variables, that can determine how risky a bank, a bank is and how much capital it should have to hold through uh, these very complex uh, model-driven formulas. So I wish we put, would put much more reliance on a leverage ratio, just a simple tangible common equity to non-risk-weighted assets. We have a supervisory process. We have stress testing can go in and take a look at, at the riskiness of assets and how they perform in stress situations. And you can have some simple rules. There is something called the standardized approach to risk-weighting. It's just standardized buckets of, of types of assets that should have uh, certain uh, certain capital requirements uh, based on uh, their uh, regulatory determination of how risky they are, the regulators' determination, not the banks' uh, models' determination. So there are simpler alternatives that can be used, but so far uh, the regulators have not been willing to chuck it. And I, I fear there's this whole industry that's been built around the advanced approaches now because it is very complex. It requires a lot of consultants and you know uh, quants to help uh, help people determine what their capital ratios are. And, uh, and I think that's unfortunate because it's, it's a bad framework. It creates all the wrong incentives. Look, you let bank managers use their own internal models to, um, to determine how risky their assets are, you will create incentives to have uh, lax models. I mean, you saw this with, with the London Whale. The London Whale, J.P. Morgan Chase missed the risk with the London Whale. One of the reasons was because they changed their model. Why did they change their model? Because they were responding to new capital rules that would require them to raise capital uh, if they didn't change how they were modeling their risk. By changing how they modeled their risk, they could show higher capital ratios. So they, they, you know, they, they uh, kind of played around with their model to, to boost their capital ratios, but then they also missed a, a key risk because of that. That's the kind of incentive, though, that this, uh, this capital framework creates. So I wish the regulators would get rid of it. Again, you know, this has been, they've been working on this thing since the late 1990s. There's just too many people that are invested in it, but it does not work. We should check it. So um, do you feel like the, uh, some of these uh, issues arise from regulatory capture where there's too much in involvement from the yeah. uh, financial sector themselves in the yeah. creation of these rules? I don't know. Uh, I, I think if it, if it may be cognitive capture, more. I don't think it's corruption. I think it's just... A tendency of bank regulators. This is true in other fields, whether it's you know it's health and safety, whether it's energy, whether it's you know uh, uh, a lot of different areas of regulated industries. Regulators have a tendency tendency to start seeing the world through the eyes of their regulated entities as yeah. opposed to the public interest. It's something all regulators need to, to constantly fight. I think with Basel too, though, so that's part of the problem. And because I think banks, even after the crisis, when these models performed terribly. I think bank managers still have too much confidence uh, in their models, and, and of course they want to be able to, you know, through through internal internal modeling, be able to boost their capital ratios until the market, oh, see how we safe we are, we got 12, 13 percent capital. When you look at their capital on a non-risk weighted basis, and it's more like three or four or five percent. So um, I, I think they're they obviously have conflicts in this, but I think also it's just the regulators have become it's it's difficult for anybody to admit a mistake. 
uh, me, everybody. Yeah. And so Basel II, the advanced approaches, it was a fundamentally flawed uh, framework. But it's very difficult. All the years people have been working on it, it's very, very difficult. They're so invested in it. It's very, very difficult to say, okay, let's cut our losses, get rid of it, go back to a simpler approach. Right. So yeah. it will continue in some way, shape, or form. I hope not. But okay. <laughs> I think we're gradually making it irrelevant by having tougher leverage ratios. The risk-based ratios that the advanced approaches produce are, are so weak that by ratcheting up the leverage ratio, you, you can make it irrelevant. It, right. You can make yeah. it irrelevant if you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Sheila, thank you so much sure. for joining My us pleasure. today. And thank you for joining us. And be sure to follow all of our content on Twitter, Facebook, as well as cfainstitute.org. Thank you. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.